Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're all living with the effects of a changing climate, but our governments can seem paralyzed over how to take effective action. My guest today, Gernot Wagner, has a simple but controversial idea about the cheapest method we can use to prevent the worst effects of climate change. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Gernot, welcome to Future Imperfect. Uh, it's lovely to have you here. What I would like you to do, as is customary on our channel, is for you to introduce yourself. And it's all about geoengineering. It is. And Future Imperfect is the perfect place to talk about this because it is highly imperfect. So, hi, uh, Gernot Wagner. Uh, juggernaut without the jug is how I explain it, my first name at least, <laughs> to people. I'm a climate economist. And I have been researching and looking at geoengineering, especially solar geoengineering, for quite a while by now. So I love my science fiction. And so geoengineering and mega projects really appeal to my imagination. And science fiction has imagined some immense engineering things. But what is the kind of fundamental difference between ordinary engineering and geoengineering from your perspective? So solar geoengineering in particular, and we can talk about sort of the broader category, but solar geoengineering, the big difference here is it is really cheap. It is fast. It is also highly imperfect to address climate change. Global average temperatures increasing dramatically, and of course, all the other changes and unsavory side effects that come with it. Solar geoengineering in many ways, it's not a solution. Let's start with that. It is just not. It cannot be. It must not be. But it has these properties of unlike ordinary climate policy, if you will, right, cutting CO2 emissions, which is slow up to a point, it is relatively expensive. Now, it's a lot cheaper than unmitigated climate change. That's clear. But 
solar geoengineering basically reverses what do we think we know about climate policy by being fast, cheap, and imperfect. So we're putting big things up in space to modify the sun's impact? Or very, very little things, yes. Okay. So basically the principle is we were white in the summer and black in the winter, right? Like winter coats are black and shirts in the summer are often light, bright colors. Why is that? Because white reflects and cools what is underneath. It reflects the sun and cools what is underneath. And black absorbs the heat and warms what is underneath. So the principle of solar geoengineering is to sort of attempt to do something like that or sort of you know research these technologies that attempt to do this for the planet. So one prominent potential technology is essentially mimicking what large volcanoes have been doing almost forever. So they throw a whole bunch of gunk into the high up atmosphere, into the lower stratosphere. And that gunk consists in part of tiny reflective particles, like sulfate aerosols, sulfur dioxide. And those tiny reflective particles do as I described them. They reflect sunlight back into space and cool the planet. We basically know that works. So when Mount Pinatubo erupts in the Philippines in 1991, global average temperatures in 1992, ironically, right around the time of the first Rio Earth Summit, global average temperatures were about half a degree centigrade cooler than they would have been without the volcanic eruption. So yeah, that sort of stuff cools lowers global average temperatures. Yes, and there have been many historical examples of that, haven't there, apparently? In the medieval period, there was a moment where there were sort of two years without a good summer, and they think that might have been linked to volcanic eruptions. So this is a, a thing that is happening, uh, natural geoengineering, I guess. Yes, I, you know, I like your hesitation, right? I wouldn't call that geoengineering, right? It's just volcanoes, basically. But yeah, actually sort of 200 years ago or a couple hundred years ago around, we got Frankenstein because of that. We literally did. Mary Schelling was supposed to go hiking in the Swiss Alps for a summer, but she couldn't because halfway around the world, a volcano erupted, Krakatoa, and it cooled the earth so much that it gave us the year without a summer. It was so wet and cold and damp in the Swiss Alps that year, that she locked herself into her cabin and together with friends sort of competed in who could come up with the scariest story. And, you know, she won and she wrote Frankenstein because of a volcanic eruption. Yeah, that's fascinating. So unlike some ideas, which haven't actually been tested and proven, we know for a fact that bits and bobs in the atmosphere reflect and can make a big difference. Is it controllable in any way? And is it can we do it? I mean, or do we need to sort of cause a volcanic eruption somewhere? How do we put this stuff up there carefully? Well, okay, so not by causing a volcanic eruption, right? So the short answer is, yes, we think we know it. And when I say we, right, it's always sort of the royal, right, sort of, yeah. uh, I guess not the royal we, right? I'm not referring to myself here. You know, the broader scientific community thinks that, yes, it would be possible to basically design 
high-flying planes. And just to be clear, right, these planes don't currently exist. So, you know, for all the conspiracy theorists out there, you know, sit down again. No, ordinary contrails are not chemtrails, right? We are not solar geoengineering the planet as we speak. So, no, it's not the regular old plane that could do this. It's basically a plane that, you know, has sort of a massive fuselage and at the same time, massive wingspan to make it all the way up into the lower stratosphere, like 20 kilometers or so around the equator. And yeah, release presumably sulfate aerosols. This is sort of the compound that we know works because of volcanic eruptions, uh, providing the natural analog. And by releasing these sulfate aerosols into the lower stratosphere, what would happen is in fact, much like volcanoes around the equator, this stuff spreads globally within a matter of weeks or so, a couple of months. And then for about a year or so, a year to 18 months, uh, those aerosols would lower global average temperatures. It doesn't stay up there forever. So your question, right, is it controllable? Like in some sense, it is, it is a control problem because you have to keep doing it. Unlike CO2, right, every ton of CO2 emitted today, like 40% of this stuff is still there a thousand years from now, right? It's not a long-term pollutant. It is a pollutant, just to be clear, right? You're introducing more pollution into the atmosphere, into the stratosphere in this case, deliberately to lower global average temperatures. And again, not the first response, of course, we have to cut CO2 emissions, but as a potential intervention that does in fact decrease radiative forcing, to use the nerdy term, and in doing so, lower global average temperatures and bring the planet closer to where it would have been in terms of overall radiative forcing without emitting the CO2 and the greenhouse gases in the first place. Are there other substances? Because one of the things that occurs to me is that uh, I remember reading about the idea of certain essential nutrients in the sea being added to cause a plankton bloom, which would absorb carbon dioxide in the mass in the top couple of meters of the sea. And people are talking about seeding that in a certain way. Are there materials that you could put into the stratosphere that when they fell back to Earth could actually fall on the oceans and have a material effect on the plankton. I was wondering whether you could combine the two. Okay, so two for, uh, so I think the short answer is no, but okay. then again, you're speaking to an economist right now, right? So yeah. I'm not the one to ask about what to put into this, right? So that said, basically, just to be clear, the two things you just described, while both often go under the heading of geoengineering, they are very different, right? Like mm -hmm. the plankton bloom, the artificial plankton bloom, is a way to suck more CO2 out of the atmosphere. In many ways, that goes under the heading of carbon geoengineering or carbon removal, right? It's literally taking CO2 out of thin air, right? Yep. You know, trees are sort of the most innocuous version of that. We've been doing that forever, right? Plant trees. Now, the problem with trees in some sense is, well, they take up space and so on, but they also keep the CO2 in the biosphere, they don't take the CO2 out of the biosphere and put it back into the geosphere where it came from. Mm -hmm. And just to be clear, when I say the problem with trees, right, there is very little wrong with planting more trees. We should be, of course. But that alone, of course, isn't an answer to climate change either. Mm -hmm. 
Well, it's combined, isn't it? It's always, it's always defense in depth, all of these things. There is no silver bullet for this scale of problem. Exactly. Mm. Right? There's no single silver bullet. There never is. And yes, what we should be doing is, I mean, big picture here, right? What are the strategies to do something about climate change? Well, step one, cut CO2 emissions, right? Cut greenhouse gas emissions. Step two, adapt. Build resiliency to the sort of climate change that's already in store. Step three is carbon removal, which is taking CO2 out of thin air. And yes, trees can do it, but you know there's technical, chemical ways to literally take CO2 out of thin air and put it back on the ground. That sounds expensive energetically and monetarily, and it is, but it may well have to be part of the solution. And yes, there's a company up there in Iceland right now, a, a Swiss startup, Climeworks, that's basically taking CO2 out of thin air and putting it on the ground. It costs about a thousand euros, you know, twelve hundred bucks or so, twelve hundred dollars per ton of CO2. That's extremely expensive relative to all the other things we could be doing, right? Deploying solar panels, wind, and so on and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. Cutting CO2 emissions. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be looking into the technology because, you know, given how late in the game it is. Yeah, there is too much CO2 in the atmosphere. And yes, we should be taking the CO2 out of the atmosphere. And the way to do it is potentially to suck CO2 out of thin air. Now, the fourth solution, and just to be clear, it is not a solution, but the fourth way to tackle this problem is this solar geoengineering, albedo management. And, you know, there are sort of innocuous versions of this. Painting your roof white cools the home underneath. It addresses the urban heat island effect. It basically has some very positive effects that you don't get by cutting CO2 emissions alone. So you may want to do some of these things in addition already anyways. But then, yes, there is this global version, the stratospheric aerosols. And that sounds scary. It is scary. But given the properties, I would strongly argue it's not a question of if. We might consider that one day. Frankly, it's probably a question of when we might go down that route. Hmm. Are there other materials to put into the atmosphere that we are theoretically aware of? Uh, do you know? I mean, so sulfates can produce acid rain, I believe. Again, I might be talking yep. nonsense. No, no, no. That's like one of the many, many risks. And yes, it's a real one. So sulfate aerosol. I mean, basically, we've been there before. We have never put them into the stratosphere deliberately, but in the lower atmosphere, there is a lot of local air pollution. We are killing like six to eight million people a year through local air pollution. Most of that is small particles in the lower atmosphere. And yes, when that lodges in your lungs, it has massive detrimental health impacts. Mm. Now, here is the, <laughs> the conundrum, if you will. And frankly, this actually is what got us started most recently, like 12 or so years ago, for the scientific community to sort of lead to this resurgence and research in zoology engineering. It was Paul Krutz, the late Dutch chemist who won a Nobel Prize for the work leading up to the discovery of the ozone hole. And of course, us, you know, Montreal Protocol and so on, and sort of trying to fix it, right? Mm -hmm. So he wrote this highly speculative essay a uh, dozen or so years ago, that basically had this thought experiment. If we were to decrease local air pollution 
the sulfur dioxide that goes into the lower atmosphere, it would do a lot of good, right? It's pollution. You should cut it, of course. It would do a lot of good. Acid rain, less asthma in kids and so on. But that sulfur dioxide in the lower atmosphere is still basically tiny reflective particles. It cools the planet. So we now can study the effects. So when Europe cleaned up sulfur dioxide pollution in you know, the 80s and 90s, obviously all good, right? No more acid rain or much less acid rain and so on. People live longer. That's great. But the Arctic is about half a degree centigrade warmer as a result of Europe cleaning up its SO2 pollution. Mm. That is a trade-off, right? Now, in some sense, you can say, you know, you're still decreased pollution, so all, that's all good. Well, yes, but pollution itself, tiny reflective particles, did have this positive side effect of lowering Arctic temperatures by about half a degree centigrade. So by removing the pollution, we now have higher temperature and, you know, lots of ice in the Arctic, bad news for your seafront property. It's extraordinary, isn't it, how we can get caught on the horns of a dilemma like this. Oh, absolutely. And it's this moral dilemma, right? And Paul Crutzen presented it as such and basically says, okay, so here's a thought experiment. Let's cut it out, right? Let's cut the pollution. Pollution sucks, right? Local air pollution, bad. Kills people. Let's stop. But in order to prevent global average temperatures from increasing at the same time, let's imagine this trade-off. Instead of putting this pollution into the lower atmosphere where people live, let's put a small fraction of it, because it's much more powerful up there, a small fraction of it into the upper atmosphere, in the, into the stratosphere, the lower stratosphere. And in doing so, we save people down here because we decrease local air pollution, while at the same time preventing temperatures from increasing because we right, keep global average temperatures from going up because we've decreased local pollution. And that's his thought experiment. And frankly, you know, that sort of got us started most recently, about a dozen years ago, and sort of led to this resurgence in research among climate scientists and climate policy wonks and others looking into solar geoengineering. So how would you imagine this would presumably have to be done by global agreement? You know, you'd have to have the big countries of the world, I suppose, uh, well, preferably everybody, would have to sort of come together, debate this, and kind of make a decision to try to do something like this on a global scale. And obviously, you even touched on it, you're going to have fringe nutty types arguing it's wrong, which it might well be in this case. And it's fraught with potential backfire effects, I would think, as well, potentially. Is it? Is it not? I mean, Oh, absolutely. And just to be clear, it's not just fringe types who would argue against it, right? I mean, mm -hmm. there's very reasonable people who would say, sort of say, look, this sounds nuts. Let's not do it. Mm -hmm. You know, there's like the fringe types, the conspiracy theorists, right? I mean, that's a, that's yeah. a difference, that kind of fringe, right? Yeah. But then there's reasonable arguments that say, wait a second, this sounds scary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. 
So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Why would we develop a technology that basically allows us to keep putting CO2 into the atmosphere mm. and basically just mask the effect? Of that CO2 in the atmosphere. And first of all, that sort of trade-off comes with, you know, has a name. It's called moral hazard. It's the moral hazard of, wait, the availability, the mere availability of solar geoengineering might prevent us or might create incentives not to cut CO2 emissions. And yeah, just to be clear, that would be bad. And, you know, moral hazard, of course, you know, usually it's sort of a, a somewhat right of center uh, sort of you know, people invoking the moral hazard because it's, you know, sort of healthcare, healthcare, seatbelts and condoms, right? Are sort of the classic examples. So healthcare is bad. Universal healthcare is bad because it removes your incentive to be, you know, prudent. It allows you to engage in riskier behavior, much like seatbelts and condoms, right? That you shouldn't be doing in the first place. Well, turns out there is a good reason for those sorts of technologies. And yes, in this case, I'm calling healthcare technology as well, right? Sort of for these kinds of interventions, because they do do a lot of good quite independently, even though, yes, they have these moral hazard properties. Okay, solar geoengineering, in some sense, potentially the same thing, right? There is the potential for this sort of moral hazard that says, Oh, cool. We don't have to cut CO2 emissions because, hey, there's this technofix out there. Now, just to be clear, that is the wrong response because solar engineering isn't a solution. It should not. It must not be that we trade off the availability or, you know, us merely talking, researching solar engineering with our desire to cut CO2 emissions in the first place. Yes, we don't want to give people an excuse to run amok. One has to be careful how these things are introduced because otherwise you give people a an exit from responsibility. It's like, oh, somebody else is going to fix it in this way. Exactly. I don't need to make any effort at all. And as we all know, when people work together, they get a lot more done if it's coordinated and everybody's working towards the same kind of goal. So, yes. Now, let me immediately talk about zoology engineering and its properties and, frankly, how it does not depend on all of us getting together. All right. So, I called it fast, cheap, and imperfect. So it has these properties that it is so powerful and frankly, so cheap. And of course, also imperfect, but yes, it is cheap to be doing this. You know, a dozen planes flying 24-7, right? So single-digit billions of dollars. Let's think of it in that term, right? Per year, call it 10 billion bucks a year to lower global average temperatures in a material way, in a way that we wouldn't notice. Now, okay, 10 billion bucks is not free, right? So when I talk about it being cheap, it's, you know, it's not that cheap. But yeah, compared to everything else we talk about when we talk about carbon emissions and decreasing pollution, yeah, it might as well be free. 
Mm. It is so cheap that if anything, it is too cheap. Now, okay, in a rational world, nothing is ever too cheap, right? If it's too cheap and you don't like it, just don't do it. Well, in this case, the problem is you might have incentives for people to, or not people, countries, right, to do too much, too soon, stupidly. And that's, of course, a problem, right? You're creating the sort of incentives that leads to an outcome that is undesirable because of the very properties of zoology engineering. So you're talking about a country overreacting and putting too much of this stuff into the lower stratosphere and overcompensating? Is that is that what you mean by that? Exactly. I mean, doing it in the first place, right? Okay, so let's talk numbers, right? So, you know, economist here, right? So it's like 10 billion bucks a year. Okay, there are 60 or so countries out there with military budgets of at least that much, where basically even the military, right? Forget about, you know, government budgets overall and sort of would it be in the purview of the government. You know, the Air Force that's already operating planes and flying them up there and uh, defending the nation from, you know, invading forces and so on. Well, it could be possible to imagine a scenario where, let's say, it would be even remiss if in the sort of if the national security advisor to the prime minister of the Philippines or India does not mention the possibility of this thing being out there if and when let's imagine some sort of climatic emergency right now we're back to science fiction right yet another 100 year storm hitting the Philippines within 14 months yet another one of these cataclysmic climatic events and there's a sufficient number of studies out there to lead us to believe that if we were to deploy solar geoengineering, we would, we could lower the intensity, lower the extremes of hurricanes, tropical cyclones, extreme weather events, extreme temperatures, extreme precipitation events, and of course, also sort of the average temperatures average precipitation minus evaporation, sort of the quantity that matters scientifically, the water availability, right? And in doing that, yeah, you could imagine making the sort of difference that would actually have a net positive impact on, you know, whatever jurisdiction is interested in doing it. But of course, you have global impact, right? You have a global effect. This is not a, oh, you just do it as the Philippines and nobody else notices. No, you lower global average temperatures. You lower global extreme precipitation. And frankly, that may well be a good thing, right? Global climate change, of course, leads to too much of that stuff. So, you know, doing something about it may not be all that undesirable. But of course, you're doing it in a way that does not address the underlying root cause. So you could imagine the kind of cost you're talking about. Well, yes, it's substantial, but in national budgets, it isn't that substantial for many countries. You could imagine it's not even the biggest countries that have to get involved in this. You could imagine somebody deciding, actually, this is a national threat. We're going to take some of our military spending, which isn't doing much, and we're going to do this solar geoengineering thing, and everybody else can stuff off because we're just going to do it. Exactly. And, you know, I mean, is this the most likely scenario? I mean, in some sense, all of these are scenarios, right? And none of them are likely necessarily. But, I mean, here's the problem. That sort of the features of solar engineering. So when it comes to climate policy, traditional climate policy, the name of the game is to motivate more people to do more of it. For solar engineering, the name of the game is to stop people 
from doing too much too soon stupidly. And of course, none of this is happening automatically, right? It turns out it's not currently happening, right? So it's not like that those effects are so overwhelming that it's just going to happen, full stop. But one ought to channel those tendencies, these desires, these properties into the right direction and basically do the sort of research that would invoke the right kind of response that says, wait, instead of one country going it alone and just doing too much, doing it too soon and so on, to basically channel those desires into the sort of research program, the governance regime, the sort of, frankly, conversations, right? I mean, governance in many ways is simply having the right conversations, literally, right? Like talking to each other, convincing each other of the right thing to do, or for that matter, stopping someone else from doing something stupid. It strikes me it's going to be very difficult to actually do any experiments on this, though, um, because you're kind of either doing it or you're not. I mean, can you do it locally? I, I don't really see how you could because the effect would spread out globally. Well, there's a big difference between a test and an experiment. I mean, not to put too much of a finer point on this, but no, you can't do sort of the local test, right? Like you can't, oh, let's just cool some small area where nobody lives. No, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Now, meanwhile, is it possible to do small outdoor experiments? Well, yes, not the sort of experiment that will have any sort of global impact. None at all, frankly. But yeah, is it frankly necessary? Would it be desirable to do experiments literally in the stratosphere? You might call them process experiments, right? It's not the sort of experiment that will have a global impact on temperatures, not at all. It's unnoticeable, but it's the sort of experiment that you know sends a balloon into the stratosphere with a tiny, tiny, tiny payload where you then are able to do an experiment that tells you something about how the chemical reactions work, right? What are the impacts? What is the actual impact on atmospheric ozone? You know, what are the risks you haven't thought about? Are there ways to figure out some of the risks that frankly have not been quantified, aren't quantified, and frankly need to be in order to have an intelligent conversation about this? Mm. Do you think somebody's going to have a go at doing this? If we're projecting into the future, this seems like something that somebody somewhere will try. Do you think that's likely? And when? What's the sort of timeline do you think for that sort of thing to be done? I would say we are sort of decades out. And when I say decades, of course, right, that's technically literally between 20 years and 100, right? Otherwise, we'd be talking about centuries on the one hand, and I wouldn't be saying decades if it were under 20, right? And it's a wide range, of course. But yeah, I can see a scenario, not a science fiction one, but, you know, a real one where Climate change keeps getting worse and worse. And yeah, you know, in some sense, we do some of the science carefully on the side. There's no major push anywhere to be doing this. There's no real conversations at the UN level and so on. In some sense, appropriate, right? Like at the Glasgow Climate Talks, no, solar engineering shouldn't have been on the agenda. That's not the thing to talk about. It's all about cutting CO2 emissions, as it should be. But then, yeah, there is basically a country, a set of countries that is on the one hand poor enough to be highly, highly affected where people die because of unmitigated climate change, because of extreme weather events. And at the same time, rich enough and sort of have the scientific expertise and the, you know, the military and sort of have the planes or developing the planes that may in fact have a global impact. And 
yeah, it's not going to happen next year. It's not going to happen in 10 years, but might well happen you know, within decades, within a few decades. And it's sort of this confluence of factors, uh, much, much worse climate change crossed with availability of the technology so cheap, so fast acting to basically be the kind of intervention that you can see a politician somewhere pulling the trigger and saying, yeah, let's go for it. How much worse can it get? Might as well pin our hopes on something like this. And of course, yes, this is sort of a very much sort of an emergency setting, not the right thing to think about solar geoengineering in many ways. But again, that may not be stopping people from doing it this way. It's kind of a last resort or one of the last resorts. I'm sure there are a few others as well, but it's a technique we could deploy, but we really should leave it undeployed for now while we try to deal with the uh, other ways of trying to halt climate change. Exactly. And, you know, now we are back to moral hazard, right? Now we are back to, yeah, this should not detract from the need to cut emissions. Now, I mean, frankly, here's sort of the inverse of what I've been talking about before. You might also imagine the inverse of moral hazard to come into play here, where you have serious people talk about solar geoengineering, and you essentially invoke the sort of response, you know, in the general public or the wider educated public paying attention to this sort of stuff that basically says, wait, if serious people are talking about what, right? Like, Maybe there's more to this climate change business than we thought. Maybe we should be cutting emissions more because, look, people are talking about this stuff. So it's sort of this counter response. It's like the inverse moral hazard, right? It's us talking, like literally you and I talking right now about this topic might invoke the sort of reaction in some people that says, wait, this sounds scary. Let's do more to combat climate change in the first place to cut emissions. So it has some parallels to the concept of mutually assured destruction, i.e. we need to do something else because this solution is not a good solution. Well, it's not a solution, right? So, I mean, I can see the parallels. I would shy away from... I should as well, yes, yes. Because, I mean, actually, here is sort of a good property of solar geoengineering. It's not a weapon because especially this technology of you know global stratospheric aerosols lowering global average temperatures... It's going to lower global average temperatures, right? It's not like you can train this weapon on somebody else's territory and cause some harm over there and leave your territory unaffected. No, right? It has global effects. And in some sense, that's good. That's a good property to have because it allows you to potentially fine tune, think about, figure out how to do this, control this potential deployment of solar geoengineering in a way that actually lowers global average temperatures in some sort of semi-rational form and basically does it to a desirable level. Now, just to be clear, even the question of who decides what this level is, of course, is a very, very, very loaded question conversation. None of this is easy, but it's a very different conversation to have than basically starting with hey, we are developing a weapon system. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're getting towards the end of the time here. If people want to find out more about solar geoengineering, do you have any sort of places for them to find out more about what you do? Funny you should ask. I wrote this book called Geoengineering the Gamble, just out this fall. And it sort of tries to make sense of the social, political, 
governance, sort of the wider implications. I mean, yes, I talk about the technology and the science and so on, but in so many ways, the more interesting questions, and I realize I'm biased on this one, but the more interesting questions here are not specific scientific technological questions. The most interesting questions are, what do we do with this? Now that we think we know this exists, and yes, we need to do a lot more research to fine-tune things, but it's not going to change the broad picture of us you know, believing, thinking that, yes, overall, this is relatively cheap, it is relatively fast, and it is highly imperfect. It's risky. Mm. And that picture overall leads you to say, wait, let's figure out the broader societal implications. And yes, the book's called Geoengineering the Gamble. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much for talking about that. It was very, very interesting. And the concept of a sort of moral dilemma, moral hazard, is one I think that is going to come up quite a lot in this podcast because very few things are clearly a win with no losses. You know, there are very few solutions to problems that don't come with costs. And uh, that is always the decision that has to be made. You know, what are we willing to pay and what are we willing to do? So thank you very much. Uh, Any last few words do you want to sort of add? Um, thank you. And yeah, I mean, the name of the game here is to talk about this technology, right? To explore it. None of this is about, oh, here's a solution, right? It's not. But we also shouldn't ignore it. We can't ignore it. Basically, if my diagnosis is right, and this has the sort of properties that leads us to do too much too soon, stupidly, right? If that's correct, then yeah, we might slither into this and wished we had done the work, wished we had paid attention, wished we had done the research, our homework, to figure out more about this sooner rather than later. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.